Hello, welcome to episode 101 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray at the helm and looking forward to another fascinating wander around the golf roads less travelled. In recent months, it's been fair to say that professional golf has probably been at least as interesting off the course as it has on it. Rumours of rival circuits threatening to disrupt the game at the top level continue to swirl and fuel was poured on that particular fire last week in Saudi Arabia when the reigning PGA champion Phil Mickelson took aim at the PGA Tour with some surprisingly strong and pointed criticisms. Those remarks drew more than their fair share of return fire and the issue has continued to bubble away underneath the surface. Well, today we're going to chat with the man who broke that story when John Huggan joins us to talk all things professional golf and with a bit of luck, give us an inside look at life in Saudi Arabia where he covered the tournament that week. Before Huggy jumps on the line though, let me introduce my co-host Adrian Lake, fresh back from a very different golf tournament, the Vic Open, which I think remains one of the great golf events in Australia, Logue. How was it down there at Barwonets last week? Uh, it was fantastic. I was down there with uh, Jimmy Emanuel helping out Golf Australia magazine with some photos and things, and uh, we did all usual things. We went to that Thai restaurant that oh, you and I really like. Well, we bumped into Cheyenne Woods. Exactly. Who didn't acknowledge us in any way, shape, oh, or no, form. Uh, unbelievably. <laughs> and uh, went to the beach house in Barwon Heads and the pub a couple of nights and played the short course at Barwon Heads, which is wonderful. Played a fair bit of golf and even had the coffee and slice in the afternoon each day of the tournament. That's done the Vic Open. We've done, yeah, it's really the full Vic Open Vic experience. Open. We watched a bit of golf in between all of that, and it was, it was wonderful. <laughs> and Jimmy wrote a bit of stuff. Fantastic stuff. We might come back and talk a little bit about the Vic Open, because Huggy has a history there as well. Enough of the pleasantries. Let's get to the man of the moment, John Huggan. Huggy, welcome. We'll talk about Phil in a moment, but uh, firstly, your thoughts on Saudi Arabia off the top of your head, having spent a week or so there for the Saudi International. Initially, I thought we might chat to you while you were there, but... I wasn't sure that was necessarily going to be particularly safe. This is a place that we hear lots about. There's all sorts of mud, for want of a better term, thrown at Saudi Arabia. What was it like inside and on the ground? Well, I, I can't comment on you know everyday life, I don't think, in Saudi Arabia. I only saw a very small slice of it. Um, I was actually staying on the, the campus of the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, which is this massive campus um, completely surrounded by a very high walls and with, with gun towers at each entrance and a lot of security. In fact, when, when the first time I arrived, I was picked up at the airport and driven to the uh, the campus, if you can call it that, um, and we couldn't get in because the, the driver, they were going to let me in, but they weren't going to let the driver or, or his car in, so he had to call and get another driver to come uh, from where I've no idea but he appeared and eventually we had to go to another entrance to get in and through security and eventually I was able to register at the 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 two inns on the campus as well as a golf course and what was interesting maybe I'm just naive but I tell you what was interesting was I went to the there was a little supermarket just up the road from, and I got some yogurts and things for my breakfast. And every it was just like being in a supermarket anywhere. I mean, every company, you know, multinational company that you can think of was represented. I mean, I was able to buy my little bar of Cadbury's dairy milk, and just about, and it, it was just like being at home, really. Um, which made me think: well, every every company in the world is feeding at the trough that is Saudi Arabia, not just the golfers. And, you know, even when I went to the bathroom in my room, there was a Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R, written on it, you know, American. You could have been at Whistling Straits. Yeah, he's got a lot of connections with golf. 
Exactly. So um, I think you know before we get too sniffy about uh, about the golfers, you know, feeding at the trough that is Saudi Arabia, I think we need to look at the the wider world seems to be doing exactly the same thing. Well, this is exactly what I was going to ask you because apart from the fact that that all must feel surreal and occasionally you find yourself in those moments, I think it only ever happens overseas, where suddenly your driver can't get in, they've got a call for another driver and you realise to yourself, I'm on the other side of the world here alone. Anything could happen here. This is actually a little bit daunting. Were you at all conflicted and did you have any of those sorts of thoughts? Because you've said more than once on this podcast and in other places, you're not sure where the line is, but you know that Saudi Arabia is on the other side of it. I think we've all been guilty of- Love that line. It's a great line. It's it's the great get out of jail card. To let you know, I've been using that line in everyday life. (laughs) Somebody at work the other day used the last of the milk in the fridge. And I I I said to them, I don't know where the line is, but I'm pretty sure you've crossed it. It was was devastating. It was devastating. Of it there. But what was that- Sort of like Huggy, because that's a. I mean, you know, we all know what happened to Kamal Khashoggi and Jamal. I've completely Khashoggi. made Emilia Khashoggi. Khashoggi, I'm not sure how you pronounce that correctly. But what what was that like? Did you have any of those sort of misgivings or any sort of conflicted feelings about any of that? Um, well, I wasn't keen to go, um, but uh, the people I was working for would, wanted me to go, so so I did. Um, I, we we kind of agreed that uh, I wasn't going to write anything too controversial while I was there and I would just I would cover the tournament like I would cover any other tournament and not without getting into the the wider political stuff that's been going on which I did um other than of course the the sit down I had with Phil which um has taken on arms and legs <laughs> as I kind of knew it would when I was sitting there listening to him um as soon as he said that line about uh, obnoxious greed I thought well there's the headline yeah and I was right. Um, and I even said to him, I said halfway through, I said, "Man, you're going to you're going to get criticised for this." And and he knew that. He, he? he acknowledged that. Mm-hmm. But he uh, he says there's there's bigger issues that need to be solved in his mind, at least um, that before you know b- before he would start worrying about um, any criticism that was going to come his way, and, and uh, of which there has been plenty, as you know. Criticism probably understates it, Huggy. Crucified would be closer to it. What was your take? I mean, Mickelson does almost nothing without calculating beforehand, as far as I can tell from a distance, what he's doing, and he always has a motive for doing it. He always walks into a press conference with his talking points ready. The conversation's always guided by mm. what he wants to talk about. So there's no he wasn't accidentally tripped up by a clever Joe asking him some questions. He wanted to say these things. Why do you think that? And what did you make of what he had to say? Well, it, it, to go back to right to the beginning, I mean it was actually it was my idea uh, to sit down. He and I have got um a history of doing that um for a good few years when he played in the Scottish Open. Uh, the week before the Open every year, he and I would have a, a one-on-one sit-down. Uh, my theory on that was always that um, he was as keen to hear my gossip as I was to hear his. Um, <laughs> he, he likes to know exactly what's going on behind the scenes. This Phil, uh, so we, you know, so we developed a, you know, I wouldn't say we were friends, far from it, but we were friendly enough, and we had that relationship uh, each each year, where where we would sit down, just the two of us. So I had actually suggested um, via Twitter, via direct message on Twitter, that um, but two or three weeks before Saudi Arabia, that we that we sit down um, and do the same kind of thing while we were there. And he came back and said at the time, "Yeah, oh yeah, that'd be fine. I would enjoy that." Um, so I left it for a couple of weeks and got in touch again just before Saudi Arabia uh, to say, "Was he still up for it?" 
Yes, he was. Uh, I made contact again, as you do with these. Just, you never quite know if these things are going to happen until you they clearly do. weren't blocked. I saw him on the, the morning. <laughs> like, no, no, I, I haven't been blocked since we'll get, we'll either. Get to that. So, um, I'm one of the few, I think. <laughs> That's but, right. Yeah. There's not many. Yes. Sorry, Aggie. Continue. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I, I spoke to him uh, again. He was actually on. He, well, he played the tenth hole in the pro am. I just I wandered out just to say hello and and confirm that we were okay for later on. And yeah, it was fine. Um, so we did. We sat down. He says yes. He says I'll see you when I'm done. I've got a lot to say. Was how he left it, and I thought, oh, that that was an interesting way of putting it. So um, I can't claim any credit for this, any great journalistic insight and um, questioning that provoked all this uh, stuff that came out, because I basically sat back. Um, he started to talk, and he kept on going. Um, we did touch on other things. We talked about the, you know, the Open at St Andrews and the winning of the PGA. So it wasn't all about the. You know the Saudi stuff. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I've still got on my computer that hasn't been used, and I'll, uh, it'll appear at some point, I'm sure. But um, he just went on. I mean, he clearly he wanted to say what he said. Um, he had it in his mind to say it, uh, and he did. And he, um, his manager, one of his management group, w- w- was sitting just a few yards away, and he said one thing that that I took out. We, we took out the story that. Um, I'm not going to tell you what it was, but he, he shouldn't have said it. And we took that out. And I think much to the manager's relief because it, he kind of cringed at the time when he said it. But he came to me afterwards and said that he'd read the story and thought it was fair, which is all really, you know, as a journalist that you can aim for. My, my friend Tom Callahan um, always has the great line when someone asks him what he's trying to achieve with a story. And he says uh, he tries to be true to himself and fair to the subject. Mm-hmm. I think that's a pretty good target. And, um, Hopefully that that was the case. I mean, I haven't had any complaints from from Phil's end uh, over the story that as was printed. So um, I did my job, and you know he kind of dug his own hole, um, if you can put it that way. Um, but I think he knew what was coming. Oh, it's I, mean, no I don't think he's. Um, Surprised by any of it? No, no, no accident at all. Huggy, you would have known exactly what was going to happen, which begs the question: you can only speculate. Why now? From what he said, and to to get he accused the PGA Tour of displaying obnoxious greed. As you said, he knew that that was going to get the line because a man who's made what is it seventy million dollars out of playing golf for a living, accusing somebody else of obnoxious greed. He complained about the media rights. He claimed they had twenty billion dollars worth of digital media rights on tap. He claimed he had to, maybe a slight exaggeration. Yeah, well, these, these are the, the things that he claimed. But all of these things would have been deliberate hugging, and they're. They didn't just occur to him in November. So why now? Did you touch on that with him at all? I mean, shall, well, should we read into this that the Saudi Super League is a goer, that Phil is one of the front and high-profile people for it, and this is the beginning of the breakaway from the PGA Tour? Well, it's it's all unconfirmed as everything is with this, this subject at the moment. Um, but I, I did hear from... Couple of sources that they they have signed as many as thirty players already, and that they're looking to kick off um, in the what the Americans call the fall, the autumn, after the PGA Tour season. I think, which is probably that makes sense in that if they were to try and get into it before the end of the PGA Tour season, it's going to get awfully messy. So probably as smooth a transition as you can ever have would come out at the end of that. So that made sense. Um, I, I I do think there's been a, you know, the media rights thing. Um, 
I don't I'm sure about the numbers, as you say. I mean, they've been kind of shot down. But I've been interested by the, the, the PGA Tours, you know, actions and reaction to this. I mean, as ever in life, I think there's, there's been a breakdown in communication between the players uh, and the tour on this. I think the tour should have been saying to the players, you know, we're making all this money from, from media rights. It's it's whatever number it is. But here's how we're we're filtering it back to you guys, you're you're getting a you know large percentage of this, and and all, I mean most of the players won't care that as long as you know as, as you well know as well as I do that you know most players don't care about anything other than the fact that they've got five million to play for next week, so that most of them wouldn't be paying attention to that stuff. But Phil clearly has, and I do think that a hundred percent to the tour and zero percent to the players is not the way it should go. Nor should it be a hundred percent to the players and zero to the tour. They should have come to some arrangement on this is to the breakdown of all this income and the two, and there should have been communication between the two groups. Um, also interesting, I think is that is there's been the, the tour's reaction to this whole Saudi thing is if they were really confident in, in their product and the quality of their product, the PGA tour should have been saying to the Saudis, right, bring it on, you know, see what you've got to show us what you've got. See if you're, if you can, think you're better than we are, you know, good luck to you. Isn't that what they're but doing by kind of, saying nothing? You know, Huggy? They, they haven't reacted in that way. Well, they've, they've, there's been a lack of confidence, I think, um, you know, that, but just by the fact that they didn't say that, you know, they, they should have been bolder and, and more confident in what they, what they have to offer. <clears throat> I do think in many weeks of the year, though, the, the PGA tour is a kind of tired product. I mean, if I'm typical, and I probably am in this, I mean, I'm a golf fan like everybody else. I, I'm not paying that much attention to a lot of the weeks um, on the PGA Tour. I mean, I just don't care because there's nobody there that I really care about. So the, they do. this might precipitate change for the better in the PGA Tour and how they look at their product and how they present their product and there'll be a bit more variety week to week in the tournaments. So they're going to have to do something. Um you know, the, if the money that the Saudis seem to have is anywhere close to accurate, I mean, they've got they've got an issue here. Um, if you're Lee Westwood and Poulter and Henrik Stenson and all the rest of them, and you're in your <clears throat> mid to late forties, you know, and somebody offers you X millions, you know, you've got to be tempted to take it. And I, and I wouldn't blame them in that sense. I mean, if I'm take Lee Westwood as an example, I mean, he's forty eight, and you know, I know he wants to play in the next Ryder Cup and all the rest of it, but you know, I'm sure Lee would acknowledge this as well. And Lee's best days are, are behind him. He, he's not as good a player as he was 10 years ago. He's still pretty good, but he's not as good as he was, and it's only going to get worse. So for him to take the money would be understandable. Hmm. So, you know, there's there's a lot of this stuff has still got to play out. I mean, I'm, I'm more interested in how you guys saw it from a distance. I mean, I was kind of in the middle of it all um, during that week, and I wasn't too aware of what was going on um, outside the the little uh, King Abdullah bubble that I was in. Um, what did you guys make of it all as it, as it was happening? Well, I think Rob Lucetic hit it on the head with a tweet that he put out that said, is anybody else having trouble finding someone to cheer for in all of this? Mm. <laughs> there's, there's kind of no good mm. guys either. Yeah. If, you, if, you, if you're if you anti-Saudi, does that mean you're pro-PGA Tour and are you comfortable being that? We've Sorry, done nothing but slaughter the PGA Tour weekly on this program <laughs> since it was – uh, since it came to pass. There's some interesting issues, Huggy. Uh, I can't help but think that the PGA Tour in particular has been ripe for some sort of punch in the face for some time. 
and this might be the punch in the face that they've had coming. Of course, the people who will be somewhat damaged by that won't be the PGA Tour people themselves. It'll be some players on it. But do you know what I mean? The, the PGA Tour what their actions have done to golf here in Australia and other parts of the world has not been, and unnecessarily have they done that. There has been no need for them to do what they've done and have the the effect they've had on golf in other parts of the world. So there's a party that kind of thinks, yeah. The Mickelson thing's awkward, I think. There's shades of Norman about Mickelson, uh, and in fact some of the issues he's raised are issues that Norman himself raised 20 or 30 years ago when he first proposed the world golf tour idea. That notion about... Media rights and players is always a conflicted one, not just in golf, in all of sports. We've seen it plenty of times with footballers who have an endorsement deal with a particular boot company. The club they play for signs an endorsement deal with a different boot company. Now it ends up in court because you've got contractual obligations on both sides that can't be fulfilled. So there are some of those issues around all that. I think the general take, and it's you can't separate the personalities, I don't think, from the issues. I think most people kind of think, you know, Phil, really? You've made 60, 70, $40 million, whatever the official figure is, out of playing the game from the PGA Tour. It's a bit rich to start accusing them of obnoxious credit. Things are probably never that simple, Huggy. But I think that was the take. What did you think, Like, What was the – I didn't hear a lot of support <clears> for <throat> Phil. Firstly, lost in all this, I think, is that it was a terribly boring tournament that – it was good finish. completely unwatchable. It was a good finish. Ugh. Last minute or two. <laughs> yeah, a terrible tournament. If that's a taste of what uh, a Saudi-run event is going to be like. We're, you didn't have to cover it. I was gonna, I was, was it was <laughs> just like, it was so bad. Anyway, um, with Phil, I think it's interesting. We've seen a couple of times now the mask slip a little bit with Phil. Like he's very good at doing the thumbs up thing. And he's quite entertaining at times and in some in certain sort of ad hoc ways, he can be brilliant. Uh, he's, he's very interesting. The, the best press conference to go to is a Phil Mickelson press yeah. conference, probably at the Masters, because he comes prepared. He's the professional's professional. He's prepared. And at those times, he thinks of himself as an entertainer and he behaves like an entertainer and it's entertaining. And, and that's why I think he's got a bit of a bee in his bonnet about the um, the the digital rights because he genuinely thinks what, that what he produces is of value. Tiger Woods has sorry, been down this same path. There was a time early in the 2000s when he was very antsy about playing in the start of year tournament for the previous winners from the year before because I think it was sponsored by Mercedes from memory and he had a deal with Buick and they yep. were using his photo triple life size on the drive into the golf course with a big Mercedes logo on it and he had issues with Tim And Finch when you reach that, that level, so, you've got a point. Yeah. I think what that gets traded off with with Phil is that you just never know whether it's the actual – what he says is the actual strategy or whether that's just an, a means to an end. And it, I, I think there's a lot of that in this case. It's, it's just what can I do to maximise this payout in the twilight of my career? Um, and interestingly, I think Phil has this attitude. Justin Thomas outright said it in a completely uh, ignorant way where he said – he started talking about in a podcast, I think it was a no laying up thing, where he started talking about the PGA Tours product. And it became evident during the course of the conversation that he was talking about the product that they offer to the players, uh -huh. not the product that they create for the fans. And and that the self-centeredness of that I find absolutely astonishing, that they they think that they, they're shopping around for the best product here. It, it's... 
Is that unreasonable? I don't think it's unreasonable to try and find the best payday. Um, that I'd never deny anybody the opportunity to do that. But I think that that's what tr- creates this entitled, pampered crap that we see for like a, a Charlie Hoffman. Um, you know, this years and years of of having everything handed to them. It leads to this spoilt brat attitude that just. Um, you know, we'll we'll have a blow up over a stupid thing like a ruling, uh, like we had with Charlie Hoffman. I think Justin Thomas is guilty of it. I think Phil is guilty of it, but manages to spin it in a million right, different ways that that did, add did, confusion to the whole thing. But I think that's at the at the very heart of it. Yeah. He's just interested in shopping around for the best product in inverted commas for him. He doesn't really care about the. Be- I mean, in, in my mind, the best product is the one that's most uh, most fan centered. Because um, that, well, that's the consumer that we are. <laughs> they're the actual consumers. These guys are the entertainers. They're also and Phil the- at times is a great entertainer, but at other, but all of that is is uh, just with this purpose of finding the best product for himself. And I, so I find the whole thing really ingenuine, um, and I, I find him pretty uninteresting. Ultimately, when the mask slips like this, and you see it uh, with with his behaviour at certain times, um, you know, we all, we all sort of hear stories about phil um and i think this is we're seeing it manifest itself in public now Mm. of course he had that famous incident at the u.s open at shinnecock hills huggy where he hit the moving ball and two weeks later he does the silly dancing ad for the shirts and it's all forgotten it's like it never happened he's been a genius at recovering from these situations do you think yeah we we did actually talk about that um I, i brought that up um shinnecock because you know i'm of the view that he um the mistake he made that day, the biggest mistake from his point of view, was what he said afterwards, and he acknowledged that he he knew he knows he got it wrong when he came out of his little scorer's hut and and claimed that you know he, he, this was deliberate. The, 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 the smart move was what he did, I mean, which was just nonsense. What he should have done is he should have said, "Look, I, I know this is awful. Um, this is not something that I I would." approve of normally but and yes I did have a very poor putt on that green but does anybody think that the ball should have been running down a hill 40-50 yards away from the hole That <clears throat> is that golf he says I did what I did to make a point um, these guys screw up the golf courses every year at this tournament uh, they've done it again yet again um, I made I did what I did to, to highlight that the the incompetence if you like of the the usga in that area um i did what i did for that reason i'm withdrawing i'll see you guys next year thanks mm-hmm. very much that's what he should have said he, and he would have been kind of a hero very much if he said that yeah, yeah very much so because yeah. all those points that, that i just made there were, were true i mean the usga yeah. it's beyond mm-hmm. you know belief that they did it yet again at that tournament so he was the point he was making was was well made albeit in an extreme way but um if he just withdrawn, I know you know this is obviously not acceptable. I'm withdrawing. See you next see you next year. That's what he should have done, and he and he acknowledged that. He said that's true. I should have done that. Outsmarted himself in so, some ways. He had too long in that scoring yeah. tent. He had plenty of time to think about what he was going to say. He, he was in there for yes. quite a while, wasn't he? He thought he came up with this. He whole, was a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. So he came up with this whole story. Is is that not all just? Uh, were sick of the amateurs running the professional game. Oh, don't start. Criticism, though, Huggy, by just using other words. Which <laughs> well, of I think course that is- simplifies it, yeah. I mean, the, 
you know, do, do you, I mean, I, I'm set, I agree with them about the, the USGA when it comes to the US Open course setups. I mean, how many times are they allowed to get it wrong before we, we actually say, hang on a minute, should you guys even be doing this? You know, I mean, <clears throat> that Shinnecock episode was just the latest in a long line of total screw-ups. Watering I mean, the rough and... The, the integrity of the competition was getting compromised almost every year by these these people. You know, it's creating these ridiculous situations and scenarios on greens. But if you let the tour I mean, set I, it up, Huggy, you, you, get, I mean, you get the PGA, Huggy. I mean, I get what you make. It'll be Before fair. you make about the USGA, but you, you get the PGA as a yeah. US Open if you let the the tour set it up. So, you know, there's, there's you, you wouldn't want the US Open to play like the John Deere Classic, would you? Which I know I pick on relentlessly, which is actually no, no. I mean, I, I I get the yeah. I mean, I'm with the USGA in terms of their you know if that's their philosophy, um, you know they want the to set the US Open up in a certain way. But they've crossed that. They crossed the line to to use her, you know what we were talking about a few oh, minutes ago. I don't know where that line. I mean, is. it's it's fine to, to do that, <laughs> but just stay stay calm, boys. Stay calm. Come in for goodness' sake. I mean, do, do you? I mean, I was there at Shinnecock the previous time when I think it was um, was it Kevin Stadler who putted into a bunker from yeah, with a three foot, a three foot putt for time. par. Yeah, yeah. I mean, come on. That, does anybody think that that's golf? And and they completely compromised that because they didn't start the round again. The the guys who'd suffered, like Stadler and others, they just had to keep playing. You know, they didn't say, right, we're, we're wiping that clean because it was crazy. They kept on going. All they did was water the green and say, right, on you go, boys. Yeah. I mean, th- these people are they're that- beyond incompetence. I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not having that. Um, that Phil got it completely wrong that day. No, no, I no, mean, no, no, no. Bad no, as it was, no. I mean, what, what it was Phil terrible. got wrong was he outsmarted yeah. himself. You know, it's, it's often been said to me. He yes, has a need to be yeah. the smartest yeah. man in the room, yeah. and he outsmarted himself on that occasion, and then outsmarted everybody else by doing yeah. the stupid ad two weeks later, and it was all forgiven as though it had never happened. Yeah. At uh, at some point, <laughs> I just want to go back to something. Hugging, you talked about Westwood and Poulter and Stenson Rose. These are the names that keep getting linked to this potential Saudi league, which I think we all accept now looks like it's going to be a reality. And goodness me, out there some logistical issues ahead of them, not the least of them being where are they going to show it and how are people going to actually watch it should there be interest in people watching it, but leaving all that aside. Isn't the problem for all those guys, Huggy, that most of us who have much more normal financial lives look at it and say, whilst we accept for most people that, you know, as Logue just said, you, you don't begrudge anybody doing the best they can out of their work, unless they're already so wealthy that it can't make a real difference. Mm. Does that not change? Well, it certainly changes the perception from the outside, I think, and I wonder whether many of those guys understand that from the inside. There must be a point for all of those guys where money has simply become a scoreboard. It's no longer what it can or can't do for you because there's nothing that it can't do for you. You've got enough of it to do whatever you want. Have have you heard the theory about capitalism where you just say, okay, just draw a limit, like you've – $500 $500 million, Nobody knows that's it. You've, you've, you've won capitalism. <laughs> that's right. That's Every, the everything, you, everything you earn <laughs> over $500 million, you've got to give back to the economy or to charity or something like Westwood that. Westwood was horrified during the- You get a little plaque or something saying congratulations. Yeah, that's congratulations. Well done. <laughs> uh, Westwood was horrified some years ago, Huggy, when Jeremy Corbyn suggested that nobody should actually be allowed to be a billionaire. Yeah. I remember Westwood getting very, very uppity on Twitter about that sort of notion. So these guys are competitors, mm. they're wide that way, but isn't that the problem for them, that all of us look at every one of those names that's been mentioned and says, you know what, 
You couldn't spend it all if you started now. Why the hell do you need more and why do you need to take it from a country that most of us in the West think is on the other side of that line that you've invented, Huggy? Yeah, I mean, I get that. Um, but, you, you know, these guys have got lives as well. I mean, Lee, Lee's been through a very expensive divorce, as an example. Uh, Henrik Stenson has had um, financial issues through no fault of his own, at least twice that I know of. Um, so he, he might need, these guys might need the money in, in, in we commas. Yeah. And we, we, we don't actually know their financial position. I mean, you know, they, they might have a gambling problem. I mean, it's all kinds of possibilities with this. I mean, we look at how much they've earned playing golf, um, which is fine, but you, you have to look beyond that. I mean, if you go back to Mickelson, I mean, he's had well-documented issues with gambling and insider trading and all sorts of things. Um, so, you know, I mean, I'm sure he's he's not struggling for a for a penny or two, but um, that would be an exaggeration. But I don't think we, we we can really know what what position they're in. I mean, in life financially. I mean, take Henrik. I mean, Henrik. You know, I, I don't know what his position is, but as I said, but we we do know that there's been two very um, high profile instances of where he's lost a lot of money through no fault of his own. He's been screwed over by um, you know, was it the Stanford guy? Was it the cricket guy that he was involved? He was one of them that lost a lot of money in that instance. And, yeah. That was the other idea. I mean, and even you know, we've had, in the past we've had Jack Nicholas and Lee Trevino yeah. were were close to bankruptcy in the past. So you, you never really know. I think we're, you can't be too black and white about this. There's there's a lot of questions to be asked, you know, and only they know the answers hmm. about what their financial position is. But uh, the, the, your broader point is is hard to disagree with. Obviously, I mean the. You look at um, all the money that they've earned playing golf, and you think, "Well, how much do you actually need?" It's a, but it's a, that's a knee-jerk reaction, I think. But hmm. you need to look a wee bit closer to each individual to, I, to make comment on their behaviour. I don't have much of a problem with them saying, "I'm going over there for the money." It would kind of be a welcome relief, yeah. Wouldn't it? That's right. <laughs> it's all it's couching it in all of yeah. this other nonsense, which I think I find pretty objectionable. And Phil is just the master at this double talk around his real objective, which is to get mm. a big, big payout in the twilight of his career. And a lot, it makes, I think it makes sense for a lot of these blokes who, who are maybe only competitive like four or five weeks a year now. Um, and, uh, you know, they, mm. they must feel it. They must feel, oh, wow, I'm not quite keeping up. I'm, I'm, mm. I'm a yard short of where I used to be. And, uh, and here's this thing on offer where I can just get truly paid for the profile that I've built up. Yeah, like, so it's like a, it's it's a, incredibly, a pension fund, isn't it? It's yeah, a, it's an incredibly <laughs> it's logical thing to think about. The fact that it's with Saudi Arabia, maybe that crosses a, a line, um, but it's also um, a line that's been crossed many times before in golf and in any other industry and by all the multinationals that are selling, selling their yeah, goods in right. Saudi Arabia. And uh, like I think we said last week in the podcast, you know, look at the origin of the Masters and uh, and the situation in um, the deep south of the United States in the in the era when the Masters formed, and, and now it's the most prestigious. Yeah, I, you know, in many people's minds, the most prestigious mind, tournament. Mind in the you, world. Uh, if you want to hear somebody talking absolute gibberish on on just about any subject related to golf. Get yourselves along to a Greg Norman press conference. <laughs> oh, good oh, lord! We talked about it, yeah, last week. Amazing, <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> He makes no I, sense. I sat there. I was in that press conference 
and it was total gibberish. I had yeah. absolutely no idea what the man was talking about, and I don't think anybody else did yeah. either. Including It was him. just yeah, gobbledygook. Just, yeah. Yeah. Uh, just to go back, in fairness, I don't think any of us – we are risk-free in all of this because none of us is ever going to be offered the sums of money that are being discussed for these players and have to make that decision. Mm-hmm. And who can honestly look into their soul and say, without any shadow of a doubt, that they would say yeah. no to that money on moral grounds? And uh, you're being disingenuous, I think, if you suggest Indeed. otherwise. It's never going to happen to us, so we're safe to criticise it, but be very different to be in that position. Isn't Adam Scott the real example here for these guys, Logue, in terms of that? He was the only player yep. prior to the 2016 Olympics who stood up and said, I don't think golf should be in the games, therefore I'm not taking part. And he's the only one who came out of that entire mess, McElroy included, lots of other high-profile players included, who went down the Zika virus route and all that sort of stuff. He's the only one who came out with any credibility because he just stood his ground and he said what he believed. And I think there's something in that. You're right. I think Shane Lowry almost said it, did he not, Huggy? He said, I'm going to Saudi Arabia because I've been paid a whole lot of money to to go there. And that's what I'm Mm. doing. He still still copped it in the neck. He did. That's bad phrasing. For Saudi Arabia, but yeah, he still uh, <laughs> he's terrible. Still, he still copped it for for that statement, but I do think, yeah, and ironically, Adam might go to Saudi. Well, Arabia, he was on we the list, know. and he pulled it. Do you, have you got any idea what happened there? I'm interested just for my own perspective. I thought it was, I felt a bit disappointed that Adam Scott looked like he was going down the Saudi route, and then the week before the tournament, his name disappeared from the entry list. I've not heard anything since he's back playing in the states this week. And, and also, playing that tournament doesn't necessarily. No, no, no. Mean of course, it doesn't. But his name be part had been of their tour. Yeah. His name had been yeah. one of those linked, and he's had his yeah, I, to I, We know I he adores spoke, Norman too. So. Yeah, I spoke to Adam about that. I think in. Uh, I think in Dubai the week before, um, I asked him why he wasn't going to Saudi, and it was all to do with it was a family thing and scheduling, as he claimed. I mean, it all made sense what he said. I can't remember the exact details of what he said, but I came away thinking, well, you know, I believed what he, what he was telling me, which is not always the case with, no. with golfers. No, but, um, you know, Adam's got that sort of, you, you believe everything Adam says. When he thinks <laughs> you want to believe him, don't you, Huggy? He's the anti-Mickelson yeah, yeah, in a exactly. lot of ways. He's such a nice guy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he uses, yeah, but anyway, he's very that, thoughtful. That, he had he had a good he had a good story for why he wasn't there, um, why he suddenly had, had pulled out, and and it made sense to me at the time. Um, it was it was to do with family and to do with scheduling, and as I say, it made sense. So um, I was glad to see that he didn't go. To be honest, so Huggy, it must have been the topic of conversation. The tournament, the Saudi International, was a secondary thing in the rest of the golf world, and I assume that would have been the case on the ground as well. You had. An extraordinary collection of some of the highest profile golfers in the world, clearly there for one purpose. It must have been the talk of the town, so to speak. What was running? What was the speculation running around about the Saudi League and those who may or may not have signed? Yeah, it was tough to get the, any of the players to, to say anything of, of any consequence. Um, I must admit, I was the one who, in, the, in Dustin Johnson's press conference, who... <laughs> pressed him a little bit. Um, I, I said to him that um, it's been quoted in the press, I think it was in Jimmy Corrigan in the Telegraph, had that Ian Poulter had been offered $20 million, pounds, whatever it was. And I said to Dustin in, in the press conference, I said, it's been reported that Ian's been offered this this amount. Um, have you had a similar offer? 
And he said, oh, no, well, not similar. Definitely not similar. <laughs> so he stumbled into telling us that he obviously had an offer somewhere north of 20 million, yeah. wherever that was, which made sense. I mean, he would he would obviously get more. Um, but And Lee Westwood announced that he'd send a, signed a non-disclosure agreement, um, which I suspect is the case for most of them. And, and, and I had a rather stroppy exchange with... Uh, with Ian Poulter after one of his rounds when I asked him about the reported offer. And all he would say was, well, if it's in the paper, it must be true. If it's in the paper, it must be true. And, uh, you know, he and I have got a bit of a, you know, there's an edge to our relationship, if you can call it that. So he's never that keen to talk to me to, to begin with. Um, but that was all he would say to me. He wouldn't confirm or deny um, anything. And that was the trouble. They, they, they've obviously, they, they've made an agreement to not say anything. And, they're kind of sticking to it. I mean, you couldn't get the likes of Xander Shoffley or any of those kind of guys to, to say anything of any consequence on the subject. And Cam Smith, your guy, well, he, well I've got people who deal with that <laughs> stuff. That was his response. I mean, really, that's, that's a little... you know, that was, that was pretty weak. Um, uh, you know, I had a back and forth with his lovely agent as well. Um, which I, I suspect my relationship with him has, has come to an end. Um, the lovely Bud Martin... Um, uh, a lot of athletes over a um, lot of years, Huggy, have found themselves in an awful lot of trouble by having people who deal with that stuff for them. So, Cam, if that is the case, do yourself a favour and take a bit more of an interest in your own affairs because uh, there's a lot of money Mm -hmm. washing around and I'd be very, very much wanting to keep a track of myself. Have they not confirmed, Huggy, just by all of the non-disclosure agreements and all the rest of it, has it not really been confirmed without being confirmed, confirmed that this thing is a goer? Yeah, I mean that was the word um, behind the scenes. Was that, as I said, that the, they've signed as many as thirty players already. I think forty-eight is the number they're looking to get to. And the, the word was that they were going to start in the, in the autumn. Um, that was again everything unconfirmed. All this sort of Chinese whisper stuff going on, but um, that came up more than once. Um, so who knows? I mean that that would make some kind of sense, yeah. uh, to be honest. But yeah, I mean getting back to Cam Smith, by the way, just you know we're we're very quick to to get all over Phil for his disingenuous, mm. perceived disingenuous. Um, but at least Phil had the, the, the guts and the balls to, to stand up and be prepared to take the criticism. And you get somebody like Cam Smith, who's got this lovely, nice guy image, and I'm sure he is a lovely guy, I don't really know him. But, you know, he's hiding behind that. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't want to, to you know, do anything to, to hurt that image, if you like. And, and I've got... To be honest with you, I've got slightly more respect for Phil in that area than I do for somebody like Cam Smith, who, who is standing up for nothing at this point. Yep. Yeah, completely agree with that, Huggy, and it's a completely fair point, which brings us neatly to We're going to talk about some of the, the Vic Open shortly and perhaps the Phoenix Open as well, which was interesting to say the least, Huggy, and I'll be keen to get your thoughts on happenings at TPC Scottsdale over the weekend. However, Huggy, the, the biggest – Assuming the league is a go, and the notion is 48 players, 12 teams of four players, so you'd imagine they actually might need more than 48 because people get injured and those sorts of things. That's the notion of this league, playing X number of tournaments per year. There's a team and an individual. There's a lot to like about the concept. It's the same one that the PGL puts mm. forward. There's a lot to like. There's a lot to, Well, there's a lot that's interesting about I don't know whether I'd ultimately like it or not, but I'd like to see it so I could decide whether I thought it was interesting. The biggest and most obvious problem that the Saudis are going to have, no matter how much money they've got, should they pull this off and they, in fact, start this rival league, where are we going to be able to watch it? You can't imagine any of the US networks touching Mm. it. 
most of the US pay TV stations won't have any interest in it, particularly with the names they've got. I mean, the truth is that without Tiger Woods, he who owns Tiger owns golf. And at this stage, the PGA Tour is where Tiger has placed his allegiance, and we would assume that that's going to remain the case, though I can see there would be an appeal for him in owning a team in some kind of league. Let's put all of that aside. Given that they don't have Tiger, Phil, Lee, Westwood, Poulter, Stenson, Rose, these are guys that we connect with. Not a lot of younger audiences are necessarily going to be racing to a digital stream to watch this sort of golf. Is there any feasible way that it can succeed in the longer term? You usually put together a one- or two- or three-year proposition for something like this, but what's the long-term prognosis for this league? Should it actually start later this year, do you think? Well, that, that's the X factor in all of this, isn't it? Um, if I was a player um, and I'd been offered whatever I'd been offered by by the Saudis, that that would be the one question in my mind is, is how long are these guys in this for? Um, you'd have to be, have reassurances that um, they were going to be in it for at least a decade, I would have thought. Um, and you're right about the television. Um, but I, I think they'll do it themselves. I think they'll, they'll have their own channel and you can tune in to watch on, on whatever channel they come up with. On a terrestrially I mean, broadcast TV network. Is, is that what you say? A terrestrially broadcast yeah, TV Yeah, I mean, who knows? I mean, I don't know enough about that stuff, mm. but um, I, why would they not do it themselves? If they've got this bottomless pit of money, they can do whatever they want. I think they'll leverage that, the agent. That, to me, well. would, would make sense. Mm. But who does the broadcast for the Asian tours? IMG run the broadcast well would it would it then so then the question becomes would this league run under the auspices of the asian tour which would open a whole bunch of doors and that yeah. might be the cleverest yeah. thing the saudis have done in this whole uh move is this well they've essentially bought the asian tour haven't they outright the asian tour was on its knees what are the logistics of trying to organize something like this do you think like it's not the kind of thing you'd want to try and take on overnight is it <laughs> yeah well, they had their opportunity a few years ago if you recall to take care of the logistics side of things by forming an alliance with the European Tour, which I, I was probably a very smart move, would have made a the lot Asian of The Asian Tour you're talking about or the Saudis? The Saudis with the European Tour. I think they tried. They did, oh, that's what I'm saying, right. is that they had the opportunity right. to do that, but that fell through. Um, and I think you had even Keith Pelley at the time sort of promoting the Saudi event saying... Oh, very much know, so. Like he was really pumping it up and... They had a bit of momentum there, but they failed to capitalise that on that somehow. But if they could have, then they would have had a whole organisation there that knows how to stage tournaments and uh, and and do the TV and, and put them on TV and yeah. get people to watch and all of that sort of stuff. So that that opportunity slipped. I think uh, next best thing is the Asian tour. Um, it it sort of elevates a um, perhaps underappreciated tour. There gives you some players who are going to be pretty thirsty for some. Saudi cash as well, so it, uh, you've you've got to, it makes sense in a couple of different ways there. So Norman's um, made some interesting hires in this way as well. He's, he's hired some very interesting people. Oh, Slugger White, and, and, yeah. well, again, and TV executives like, and some yeah, some TV the C-suite nonsense that he goes yep. on with. There's been some pretty impressive people. Yeah, come on board there in that area, Rod. Sorry to interrupt, but the, the, this was interesting. Um, when Phil, when I wandered out to speak to Phil when he was playing in the pro arm. Um, he was playing with uh, two pretty high-powered American lawyers um, whose names will remain a mystery, but the third guy in his group was Bob Diamond, who was heavily involved with Barclays Bank and Scottish Open back in the day. 
And what was interesting, well, I, I wasn't intending to, to walk very far with Phil in the program because I had other things to do, but he made a point of saying to me halfway up the 10th fairway, would you mind not hanging around because I've got a lot of questions to ask these guys? And afterwards, um, a couple of days later, I asked for the, the list of starters in the pro-am, the sheet that came out, just listed the pros' names. There was no mention of the amateur. So I, I, I actually asked for a list of the, who who had played in the pro-am and, and they wouldn't give me it. Well, that's They wouldn't tell me mm. which amateurs had played in the pro-am, which I thought was, was kind of interesting. And who were they and why were they there? Uh, clearly to talk... Money. Yeah, Trump's son-in-law asking, was asking, there, was he not? Jared, Jared, was his name? Is it Jared? <coughs> he Christian? was, yeah, yeah. yeah. Asking too many questions. So, like you, you, you know, get in serious trouble. Yeah, there was plenty going on, yeah, yeah. I think, um, that was kept under wraps. Uh, that, that And that kind of opened my eyes to it a little bit because I was completely taken aback when they wouldn't tell me. He, so here's the but question. Then once you think about it. Uh, he, here's the question I keep coming back to, Huggy, and I've sort of discussed this with you briefly, Logue, as well. What's the ultimate point of all this? What is it that the Saudis are trying to achieve? I'm, I'm familiar with the notion of sports washing, but if that's what they're up to, well, it's not a great return on investment to this point in terms of the golf because they they get hammered every time this thing gets mentioned in all of the golf press. But also why? Why do the Saudis care what the rest of the world thinks about them suddenly? They've never really cared about it before. I'm intrigued by this notion it hasn't stopped them, as you've pointed out, dealing with any of the multinational companies that we all deal with around the world at various times. It hasn't stopped them being involved in all sorts of very um, lucrative deals with governments of all persuasions around the world. What's the point of all this, do you think, Huggy? Well, I can only think that they're, they're, they've got a very long-term view of this. I mean, the, you know, the oil money is is there, but it's... It will run out eventually. You have to think. I mean, it's not a, you know, an exhaustible supply. So they're, they're maybe thinking, looking at Dubai as the example. I mean, Dubai doesn't actually have that much oil, um, but they've gone into you know tourism and uh, golf and sports and all the rest of it um, in a huge way. I mean, there's all kinds of things going on in Dubai almost every week, sporting wise and you know leisure. So maybe they're thinking, I mean, it's a very long-term view. I mean, you, uh, if, if so, I mean, I'm only thinking out loud here, but uh, that might be, a, that's maybe a possibility. Maybe they can see, you know, in 50 years, 70, whatever many years' time that uh, the oil's just not going to be there um, anymore and they're going to have to be into something else. Saudi Arabia, the in tourist In 50 years' mecca. time, if they start mm -hmm. now, they, yeah, they're going to be, you know, looked upon a lot more favourably if they, if they start with the process now. I mean... That that is to me. That's the only conclusion I can come to, other than, as you say, that they're just fed up with being painted as the the demons of the of world political scene, um, for good reason in many ways. But other than that, if you've got any other alternatives, I'm all ears. I, I, I don't. I don't think the tourism thing's even uh, hidden from us. Like it's it's obvious in their marketing copy. Yeah, they, they've stated publicly that they're trying to set up the economy for. <laughs> yeah. A post-oil economy, which yeah. makes a whole lot of yeah. sense. I don't, I don't think it's even an ulterior motive. It's well, the primary motive. Wouldn't it's it be easier and cheaper just to stop doing some of the things <laughs> that people around the world find so offensive? I, mean, I know Dubai <laughs> haven't stopped yeah. there, but wouldn't that seriously be easier, cheaper for everybody? That It just doesn't seem such a sense. They're, they're talking somewhere between $1.5 and $2 billion being available for this golf venture. That's a lot of money. <laughs> 
It's not a lot of money to the public investment fund, which is worth $500 billion, but it's an awful lot of money to burn, you would think. Mm. It just seems like a very odd- Billions are a lot more than millions. Yeah. yeah. I, I just can't comprehend that this is a, a, a good deal in any way, shape, or form. The return on investment just seems so potentially small. And Gulf of Alls was the other thing, Huggy, is even in the Western world, we're seen as pariahs by a lot of people. They're going to take over a sport that most people in the West hate as mm. well. Who think we're elitist? Yeah. So the well, winds per- don't pile up. Fit, maybe. Yeah. They, and they are. Oh, I'm, I'm just going to sound like a Saudi apologist. You're forcing me into sounding. Like, yeah. I mean, we've they are. We've exposed you as a communist in the past. Some of so their, this is the, the next obvious. They are changing some of their policy. It's still appalling. Um, uh, but I, I, this is the thing. I, I think some of this will ultimately lead in generations to uh, a better outcome for the people who live there. Um, whether the intent and the motivations are noble or not, um, bringing a country, an isolated country, into the world community forces them to behave better. And uh, the people who suffer the most from a badly behaved, isolated country like a North Korea or something like that are the people who are oppressed within that country. And I think that's that's what we need to think about is the well-being of those people. And uh, ultimately, I, I think... Maybe we're on the path to seeing a better outcome, a better life for those people there. So, no. I agree. And so, is it that these things are beyond simple golf riders, really, aren't they, Huggy? You're talking big ideas, big ideologies, and complex yeah. human behaviours that I think are beyond us. But you, you can't help but wonder, can you? Uh, I, I, I understand. I think we talked about this last week. The very simple position that you know, Saudi bad, don't engage. Yeah. But I don't know that ultimately if that leads anywhere. And in some ways, you're becoming a part of the problem if that's the, the position that you take, whether it's necessarily about the golf or whatever. So I think it's a bit more complex than just a binary right and wrong, isn't it? Did you get any sense from what sorts of people, local people, did you get to interact with, if any at all? And what sense did you get from them, Huggy? Well, none. I mean, the, 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 that's. I mean, I often say that you know, when you go to a tournament somewhere, you know, there, there was nobody there. Well, this <laughs> came really close to that. The the fairways were all roped off, you know, much to my amusement, because there was literally nobody there. There was a few expats knocking about, um, but I tell you what, if it, if it was if it reached three figures, they'd be lucky. they would only just. From what I saw, there was nobody watching. Wow. And the university uh, campus so you were on. It was a, you, you were on a university campus it, it you were saying earlier? That was, yeah, it was 40 minutes away from the golf. I was in a bus um, trekking through the desert. And every every day, this is another thing, every day we passed this, this massive railway station. It was two-thirds of the way between the, the campus and the golf. And... Every day, I mean, I, I looked across and there was there wasn't any trains, there weren't any cars, there weren't any people. It was just deserted, literally deserted, and it was massive, and it, it was in the middle of nowhere, presum- you know, you know, what it looked like to me, in the middle of the desert, and it's uh, it's extraordinary, really. I mean, I, and I didn't have any contact with locals other than. You know, the girls on the desk at the at the little inn where I was staying, or the people who served me at the the supermarket or uh, I must admit the uh, the Burger King where I <laughs> went to have something to eat one. There was there was Burger King and KFC and Starbucks and you know it, it was just 
it was an ext- it was like a little western bubble in the middle of Saudi Arabia. It was a massive campus. As I say, the I didn't play the golf course, but uh, a couple of guys did, and they they came back saying how how good it was. This this pristine golf course in the middle of the campus that hardly anyone ever played. Well, you can study. But, uh, it was yeah. It's, as I say, the, the the Truman Show comes to mind. <laughs> if you've ever watched that movie, that's that's what it was like. Apart from, you know, Ed Harris wasn't looking down from above. It was you know. Some Saudi guy, you know, keeping tabs on what I was getting up to, which wasn't much. It just feels weird, Huggy. I imagine it must have just felt quite surreal all week, like you said, the Truman Show, that just outside this bubble, if you could pierce it, would be a whole other world that looked nothing like the little bubble that you were being transported yeah. around in. And that's a, that would be a very it's Exactly what you see the tourist experience in North yeah. Korea is like. You, know, yeah. they, they, you only see what they want you to see. And we never got all over the amateurs that went there and played the North Korean Open for those three or four years when they held it, did we? <laughs> no. Do you remember that? Yeah. Uh, the I adventure do. golf thing there it was fantastic. I think an Australian yeah. kid won the first one from memory. Yeah, there's two courses. There's a course in Pyongyang, yeah. and uh, which is a tiny little thing. It's like an executive course. But there's the course where uh, the, the, the championship Kim Jong Il had yeah <laughs> had eighteen hole in ones or something. <laughs> that was yeah. outstanding stuff. Well, all big stuff. That's clearly not going away, Huggy. Congratulations on. I know you sort of didn't do a whole lot in the sense of, you know, digging it all out. But congratulations on breaking what has been possibly the story of the year. That's That Mickelson interview, I think, is the beginning of something that by this time next year yeah. will have changed uh, the way golf looks, feels, and is played around the place. And if it's for yeah, the better, I you'll mean, be congratulated. Think, um, if it's not, you'll be in all sorts of trouble. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the significance of it is, is highlighted, I think, by the fact that um, you can still find it on the Golf Digest website <laughs> two weeks right. later, which is uh, you'll be unheard of. You'll be able to find it in our show notes as well. Because Logue collected I'm the just links. getting the link right now. As we speak. Yeah. Yep. Back to more of our normal... It's, com- it's certainly unheard of. Sorry. Sorry, I was just going to say it's certainly unheard of for one of my stories, put it that way. <laughs> to last more than a day or two, so uh, <laughs> well done to you there, Huggy. Back to our nor- more normal curmudgeonly selves and regular program. What did you make of the Phoenix Open at the weekend, Huggy? Did you get to see much of the – well, I thought it was somewhat um, controversial. I'm not into it, but throwing beer cans on the green after Sam Burns had his ace, yeah. there was – you know that, that hole's getting more and more rowdy every year, if that's possible. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm ahead of the game in the sense that um, I got turned off by that tournament quite a long time ago, so I, I didn't really pay much attention to it, to be honest. Um, but I was, I've obviously become aware of the beer cans. I've seen the pictures. Um, yeah, I mean, we keep talking about lines, but uh, <laughs> <so far laughs> line. I don't know where they've crossed it. The, the line is a dot to these people, you know, yeah. so... Um, it's just, I mean, it, it, I mean, for anybody to argue that that is acceptable in any way, shape, or form, I mean, they've completely lost the plot. I think. It's I a- mean, you know, we we all talk about growing the game and all, this, and it, it's difficult to discuss this sort of thing without getting or sounding a bit sniffy and snobby. But there's a line yet again. There's a line <laughs> on on growing the game. I mean, you can't just you know have anybody in his but the game can't absorb that many people. So. Um, you know, I don't. I mean, the the people that are behaving like that, uh, I don't want them in golf. I I, I draw the line short of them. Put it that way. There's, uh, I think it's a distinctly American thing to be enthusiastic and support what what happened there with the throwing the water bottles and beer cans and things. I I think in Australia we see we attach a much more sinister, hostile. Uh, thing to that sort of scene 
Like, we, if that happens at the cricket, and it has happened at the cricket, they get marched. It's incredibly, it, but it's a hostile, nasty yeah, thing at cricket. It's mm. a very aggressive thing if somebody starts throwing mm. stuff onto the field. And it, it, you know, it happened in uh, an Ashes test, I think, and Warney had to come out and settle the crowd down. <laughs> <laughs> a great ambassador. Uh, so maybe, you know, they needed Warney to come out there rather than some people sweeping up the bottles. They just needed Warney to calm the whole thing down. But uh, in, interestingly, they were doing it as an expression of joy and enjoyment over there. So that's why people, I think, have embraced it in some positive way. But I, I see it and I flinch a little bit because I think it, there's there's a sinister, mm. hostile and um, thing associated with it. And probably soccer countries or football countries, sorry, Haki, around the world um, think a similar thing. Like if, if fo- football fans are throwing stuff onto the ground. <laughs> it's, it's really a it's, good sign. It's a riot. And in fact, this whole, oh. Oh, this whole thing, the Simpsons already did it with the... The when the, I don't know if you remember the episode, Rod. I know Simpsons is one of the two TV pro- <laughs> programs that you've actually seen, um, where the Simpsons did soccer, and there's these soccer commercials. It's incredibly overhyped, and the the whole family's going, "Why haven't we ever heard of soccer before? We've got to go watch this soccer match." And they rush out to the soccer, and they're bored within like one minute of kickoff. <laughs> like there's a big build up to the whole thing, and within one minute they're just passing the ball back and forth. And they're bored, and then somebody spills Barney's beer, and there's a riot. There's a riot, <laughs> and I, I think that's what we've got here at the Phoenix Open every every year. The Simpsons did it first in in soccer. This from the people who, if you've ever been to an NFL game, it's hard to understand how they could be critical of anything the way the teams go on and off there and takes hours to play. Huggy, I thought there was an interesting development, and this probably started. This probably plugs into a bigger issue about generational change. Uh, Harry Higgs and Joel Damon both taking their shirts off on Sunday on the 16th green and running around mm. like soccer players who'd just scored a goal. This would have been unthinkable even 10 years ago, I'd imagine, uh, leaving aside whether it's good or bad. Are we seeing a generational change amongst the people who play the game at the top level? We're well outside that now. You and I grew up with Tiger Woods. That's definitely yesterday's generation, isn't it? Well, this kind of thing, I mean, I, you know, we're, we're now getting into the realms of old fuddy-duddyism here. Um, but this all, the deterioration started with me with all the spitting. You know, the, I've had this discussion with Jim Furyk, who, who spits constantly on the golf course. And he claimed to me that it, it was a baseball thing in America, which is, is certainly true. The baseball players are notorious for expectorating all over the place. But the point I made to him was that I, I never saw Jack Nicholas, Lee Trevino, Arnold Palmer, that generation ever spitting on a golf course. So where did this come from, and why is it now suddenly acceptable? Uh, and you know, and now we're just getting you know Justin Thomas blundering around you know with cans of beer at the Ryder Cup to rile the crowd up. Um, you know, I'm I'm tired of hearing pieces for, written by American journalists about the Ryder Cup, if we can segue into that just slightly, about how the, the Europeans just complain all the time about the crowds when they're losing and this and that. That That is written by people who've done no research, no reporting to write that story, because if you do speak to any European player, and I mean any European player, they will tell you off the record that they're abused constantly during the Ryder Cup. I mean, um, Paul Laurie, for, uh, to use him as an example, he he told me um, at Medina, uh, he, he played the last time at Medina, and he, he reported to me that he was heckled on every single full shot he hit that week. Every single one. 
without exception. And the Americans seem to just think that, you know, they want it to go away. Because, and part of the reason is that the European players are reluctant to go on the record with that stuff because if they do speak out publicly, it gets worse. It worse, yeah. So, yeah, so the kind of catch-22 situation. But take it from me, if you speak to any European, and I mean any European player, they will tell you that they're abused horrendously at the Ryder Cup. It's well, a big Mark, part of it now. Mark Leishman's wife, who is American, wrote after the 2017 Ryder Cup, uh, President's Cup at, was it Liberty National mm-hmm. there in New York, that she was embarrassed by her fellow Americans and watching yeah. it at the President's Cup, which has nowhere near <laughs> the venom that a Ryder Cup has. So you can only imagine what that is like when it's amped yeah. up yeah. to that degree. Let's finish on a nicer note. I'm not sure whether you got to catch any of it, Huggy, but I know you've got a history with the Vic Open. Didn't you caddy at the – you're the only one of the three of us who's caddied the Vic Open, aren't you, Huggy, if I'm I not did. mistaken? Yeah, I caddied for um, my, my pal Beanie, Katrina Matthew, um, what would it be, three years ago now probably. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'm very proud of the fact that, and I still rub it into her. Um, I think she was tied 34th, you know, obviously back in the pack, but it was turned out to be our highest finish of the year. So, I'm, you know, very pleased about that. Hard to believe that you didn't get the bag for the rest of the year after that performance. Huggy, but like you were down there, <laughs> we, we can't sing the praises of this tournament enough. I mean, if if anything is diametrically opposite, the Phoenix Open on the golf. Mm. Venn diagram, I would imagine it would be the Vic Open. How was it mm. this past year? First time, first well, we missed the Vic Open last year. It wasn't played. No LPGA or European Tour co-sanction this year, but it still looked, if you were a golfer, like a very golfy golfer's event and would have been fabulous mm. to be at. Yeah, and it's a really golfy part of the world down there as well. There's a lot of, lot of great golf, and I think it's probably taken like a whole, it's a, almost a decade, I guess, of that tournament being hosted at 13th Beach. But you come to appreciate what a really good golf course yeah. that beach course at Thirteenth Beach is. Yeah, it's much. it's really good. Um, and, you know, superficially, it's sort of it's like a resort or a housing estate thing, but it's far better than that. And and I think that really adds to the. It wouldn't be what it was if without that golf course being as good as it is. The important part of the puzzle. All thirty six holes yeah. of the course there, um, and that's a part of the model. And the I, I love the format. There's there's talk about taking it to other events um i think there's a there's an interest in uh working out your the point you've raised rod about um you know at other this this works perfectly for the vic open but for for perhaps bigger events more important events you can't have that cut the the two cuts bring it down to 30 people in the men's field and 30 people in the in the women's field on day four that's not appropriate for for perhaps national opens um but uh, nonetheless, the the fundamentals of that format with the two tournaments, again, I must say for me, and I think most people on site, the women's tournament was the showcase event. Um, and Hannah Green was the highest profile golfer in the field, male or female, without doubt. Yeah, absolutely. And we had a uh, and we had the most high profile player there win, um, and really be exert sort of dominance. She's she's a serious person and a serious golfer oh, yeah. and it really <laughs> becomes apparent when you watch enough live tournament golf you can you can start to pick up on the signals of the people who are there to play golf and do it well and treat it like a job mm-hmm. and the people who are there to treat it like a social occasion mm-hmm. where they muck around on the practice fairway they muck around on the putting green and they've got all the talent that a hannah green has maybe more in some cases 
but they try to walk this line of like I can have fun and be a winner because I'm just so good. There's you see a bit of that, and I wouldn't name any names, but there's a there's a few of those in the field. Um, but then you've got uh, some incredible competitors like a Hannah Green who grinds. Like you, you put both those players, Hannah Green right next to some somebody else on an eighty yard pitch shot. She's going to grind on that pitch <laughs> shot. Absolutely, like yeah. her life depends on it. Yeah. And a lot of other people in the field have the same or more talent, but not the same. won't won't grind on it in quite the same extent. And that that was my takeaway from it was just watching her um, be a professional. She, she's a real pro. This pros. is Scotland's Hannah Green. Yeah, Scotland's <laughs> Hannah Green. Who beat Scotland's Karen Davidson into second place, obviously. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we were all over that. Yeah. So, I saw you tweet that uh, a couple of times. I think to me that the thing that tells you everything you need to know about the Vic Open, if I could only go to one golf tournament in Australia every year, I would pick the Vic Open over the Australian Open. Mm. Australian yeah, Open is more fun. important. It's, it's, important. it's, it's a, a more great important event. place as well. But the Vic Open is just a great event to yeah. go at and uh, be a part of it. I would say everything I just said about Hannah Green I think also applies to Dimi Papadopoulos. I agree too. Who's a great fella and actually does like to party and has, has a lot of fun. But my observation of him on the golf course and in his preparation for a round and standing over every shot that meant anything, he, he was a utter professional and he really grinds and – he set himself apart in that manner as well. And so did that John Lyris, yeah. who I've never seen before. Uh, no, he was an unknown, wasn't he? Just yeah. But up and- brilliant golf swing and uh, really serious competitor. I enjoyed yeah. watching him. Uh, he's, one, he's one to look out for. He had, had a little bit of luck, bad luck on day four, but um, uh, someone who's you know, genuine competitor and one, one to watch, I think. So. Funny you should say that. You, you'll appreciate this, Huggy. About 20-odd years ago, it would have been, there was a press day about the Holden Scramble, the big event they used to have. I think it's now the Volkswagen Scramble here in Australia. It was a huge event. People all over the country played, and they had a big final up in Queensland. I think they were playing it at the Royal Pines at the time. They had a media day up there, and we were sort of all up there at Royal Pines for it. And Peter Senior was going to play some holes. Uh, and he was not in his pomp then, but he was not far removed from some of his best golf, and he was playing a couple of holes with each of the groups. And tee-off was about 9 o'clock, and I happened to be on the grounds at about 7.30. He was out on the practice green. And I said to him, Pete, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm practicing. I said, why? He said, I've got to play golf today. I said, what do you mean? You're only playing with us. And he says, I'm playing golf today. If I'm playing golf, I have to play the best golf that I can because I'm a professional golfer. Yeah. Therefore, I turn up two hours beforehand, and I practice my putting to play with a bunch of journos. That's that Hannah Green That's attitude a, that I'm, you're talking it's not, about. It's not like she's a super serious person. I've created the impression no, no, she's no. really uh, like. Nor is Pete Senior, lovely boy. Th- Hannah as Green's as a lot of fun, and you can tell she's having a lot of fun yeah. uh, with the people around her at the tournament. Um, and she, but she's not out at the pub during tournament week. And, and if she's playing golf, she's playing golf. That's what she's that's right. doing. She's extremely much. focused. She's able to switch it on, that's switch it off, and uh, really bring out her that's best Scotland's performance. I was going to say Scotland's Hannah Green. Green. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Fabulous yeah. ambassador for Scotland, Huggy. One of the best you've got, I think, actually. Karis <laughs> Davidson did marvellously well as well, Huggy. Um, yeah. Yeah. Huggy, great to catch up with you. I'm not sure we advanced anything anywhere, but it was fabulous to get a first-hand view of what things were like in Saudi Arabia. And, of course, that story with Phil because I really do mean it. As a, as a journo, that's a fabulous thing to – to have done that's a well, it's not a major win, but it's like a tournament win when you get a story like that, uh, and it's uh, and being a part of it. So well done on that, and thanks for joining us today. Been great to have a chat. Looking forward to your chat with Paul Laurie on the thing about golf, which should be released by the time this comes out, uh, that people can have a listen to, which will be yeah. fantastic, I'm sure. But thanks for your time today, mate.
Thanks for having me. I'm I'm looking out here at a very snowy scene. Uh, it snowed overnight, so uh, it's nice to take my, my mind off that just for a little while at least. Thank <laughs> you, Peter. Dubai, where'd you go? Dubai, Saudi Arabia. Now the snow of Scotland. Oh, hard to imagine. <laughs> hard to imagine a more diverse yeah. range of conditions in two or yeah. three weeks, is it? <laughs> and I've got to go to London tomorrow to renew my US visa. So that's always fun. All good things must come to an end eventually, Huggies. <laughs> I think a trip to London is the official full yeah. stop on things coming to an end. Like, great to catch up Indeed. with you. And thanks for your thoughts and input. As always, been uh, been interesting to have a listen. Thanks very much, Rod. Thanks, Huggy. Episode 101 of the Good Good Goal podcast done. I won't promise that we'll be back next week because we haven't been particularly good at that lately. But we're trying to get back into this week, but we'll be back with episode 102 soon here on the Good Good Goal podcast.